Greetings, Earthlings, Ecoholics, Cetacean Nation, and fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. Welcome to a special Scanna triple header, three amazing interviews. We caught up with a couple of our favorite past guests to the latest news on two major bills currently before Canada's Parliament. We met Canadian Green Party leader and happy newlywed Elizabeth May in Nanaimo, where she was campaigning for Paul Manley in a federal by-election. We did a deep dive into Canada's Free Willy Bill, a proposed law that would end cetacean captivity in Canada that looks very, very, very close to passing. We also called NDP Member of Parliament Finn Donnelly at his Coquitlam office to talk about the latest on the bill to prevent shark finning. He spent eight years working on this bill, and now he's afraid the Liberals are trying to kill it this session by amending it into oblivion. Finn and the Sharks need our help. Stay tuned and check our show notes to find out what you can do. And finally, we tracked Canadian researcher Josh McInnes for the scoop on some very special orcas he saw up north right before he arrived in California in time to encounter the southern resident orcas from Elpod on spring break in Monterey Bay. As always, this podcast is brought to you by our awesome podmates who sponsor us through patreon.com, including Robert Anderson, Susie Venuta, Darren Laren Young, Mike Whitley, Naomi Devine, Eagle Wing Tours, and Yosef Wask. Our patrons are helping us pay for the gear we need to record and store these interviews and to pay honorariums to the awesome team that makes these podcasts possible. And now, here's Canadian Green Party leader Elizabeth May on the origins and future of Canada's Free Willy Bill. Congratulations on the Free Willy Bill. Yeah. What happened? We're getting uh, down to the finish line. I mean, this bill started as people. I did a press conference to launch this bill with retired, it's time, Senator Wilfred Moore, who would have known it would take so many years that by the time the bill got through the Senate, he'd had to retire. And then Senator Murray Sinclair, God love him, who was former chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, took over sponsorship of the bill in the Senate. The conservatives in the Senate fought this bill so hard. I've never seen anything like the determination of conservative senators to keep whales in captivity. It's horrific. So we finally got it this fall. We finally got it after more than three years, 17 different committee hearings, all these witnesses. We finally got it out of the Senate and into the House. Now this is the, for people who pay attention to how government works, this is the reverse order. Usually bills start in the House and then they go to the Senate. But because Senator Wilfred Moore brought this bill forward, which is almost, you know, we've been laughing about it for years now, but his nickname is Willie. <laughs> and so, right? So, so Senator, really is the it is Willy really the Free Willy Bill brought to us by Willie, who's a Nova Scotia uh, liberal, now retired. And of course, the minute we came out with the bill, Marineland attacked both of us and said our motives were to drive up tourism where we're from, in my riding of Saanich Gulf Islands, and for Wilfred Moore along the coast of Nova Scotia, where people can see whales in the wild instead of seeing them in swimming pools. So they, they attacked our motives as being all about trying to drive up tourism in our own areas. It was so it's been nasty from the start. Because people are just gonna drive out from Niagara Falls to Yeah. Oh yeah. So I have to say it's been really hard fighting Marine Land. They've been really uh, it's uh, well Vancouver Aquarium on the other hand voluntarily said they'd stop keeping cetaceans in captivity. 
So the fight then moved to the House of Commons, just fast forward how this all went down. And I thought we had, everybody thought we had everybody's support. I mean, we've been working with, you know, animal justice and a, a lot of the groups that work on taking and, and mercy for animals, groups that are looking on the well-being of, of these individual animals because it's a question of cruelty to individual animals. It's not, it's not like trying to fight Kinder Morgan Pipeline to save the southern resident killer whales, which is all about habitat and wild spaces. This is about cruelty to individual animals, sentient beings, whales, dolphins, and porpoises should not be kept in captivity. So we thought we had everybody's support and everyone understood that if you pass an amendment at this stage to a bill that's going through Parliament, it would then have to go back to the Senate to be finally approved. And that would kill it because we know how determined the senators are to kill the bill. So we went into, I was, uh, we'd found out at the last minute that a bunch of amendments had come forward. It looked like they'd come forward from the government. The government was ready to kill the bill. And I was talking to people in the Prime Minister's office, the Minister of Environment's office, the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans, various parliamentary secretaries. I was just calling everyone I could think of and begging them to rethink this. And I really don't know where it got unstuck, but there were also tons of emails, public pressure. We went into the committee hearing on, for it's called Clause by Clause on the committee. It was Tuesday afternoon. And suddenly we could feel this miracle happening that amendments from the liberals were being withdrawn, withdrawn, wow. withdrawn. So the tension right up to the last minute was, bill is passed without amendments. Now that means it's passed out of the committee. Stages that still need to happen are called report stage, which we hope happens Monday, April 8th, so soon. And then third reading, and then royal assent, and this bill becomes law. I mean, scientists from around the world were so excited when we were sharing the news that we got it through the Fisheries Committee without an amendment. So I owe a huge thank you to Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, to Catherine McKenna, Minister of Environment, to Parliamentary Secretary Sean Casey, who, by the way, mentioned to me, he said, you know, I got over 7,000 emails telling me what to do and to be sure the bill gets through without amendments. He said, so far I've gotten six thank yous. And he said to me, Elizabeth, you're the sixth. <laughs> so, oh. I so just as a, as a little... That is how the world works, yeah, isn't it? But you don't it, get thank yous for doing it, you get... Just a note to all, you know, I think it's important to have credit where credit's due. I'm, I got all kinds of issues where I'm still like this with Jonathan Wilkinson and Catherine McKenna. But S203, I owe a big thank you to Jonathan Wilkinson, to his parliamentary secretary, Sean Casey of Prince Edward Island, to Catherine McKenna, to Peter Shevsky, who's the parliamentary secretary, to Justin Trudeau, to everybody I talked to, begging people in the prime minister's office, we got to fix this. And they did. Can you walk through what happened? Can you, sorry, can you walk through what the bill means? What the bill what? means, okay. We have another piece of legislation right now before the Senate that also has to pass, which is called C-68, which is fixing the Fisheries Act. So to our surprise, the C-68, fixing the Fisheries Act, includes saying it is now illegal to take a cetacean into captivity in Canadian waters. So that's good. But what my bill does, what Wilfred Moore's bill does, is, and, and Murray <laughs> Sinclair, so there's a lot of parents of this bill right now, <laughs> Murray Sinclair, Willie Moore, and me, says you can't keep whales and dolphins in captivity, and you can't breed them in captivity, and you can't buy or sell or trade to bring them into Canada to keep them in captivity. There are exemptions, by the way, so if a whale is in distress, 
and you need to do something to make sure that they're taken care of properly. If there's an emergency situation, or there's a grandfathering provision that says, look, if the, the, the fact that whales and dolphins and porpoises are already in care and control of marine land, they write the minute the, the law passes, it doesn't mean they're immediately breaking the law. You have to give them time to adjust to the new state of the law so that they, they brought out at the last minute, oh boy, oh boy, they were creative. They came up in the house and the lawyer from Marineland said that this bill would force Marineland to perform abortions on belugas because it would be, you know, because the minute that a, a pregnant beluga gave birth, the baby beluga would be illegal. I really wanted Rafi's help on this, but the idea they raised the wow. specter of beluga mother's right to life. I mean, it was just, there were things about this you thought, they came up hey, with points for creativity. Creativity. Marineland is creative. I hope they'll be equally creative figuring out how to stay in business without cruelty. It's important, I think, when they have to go through the transition that we support keeping a business that's profitable, that has lots of people employed. I figure it's just like when circuses gave up having animals in Cirque du Soleil. Cirque du Soleil is a circus with no animal acts. They changed everything, but they were the circus that changed everything, and they're yeah. in Montreal. So now Marineland becomes the big circus with a giant swimming pool in which incredible acrobats dressed as mermaids perform. And everyone will actually love Marineland when it stops being cruel to cetaceans. Um, that second bill, what's, what's it said? And I've wondered about the second bill because yeah. when the rescue mission, and I use that term loosely to save Scarlet, happened last yeah. summer. I knew there was a possibility that, you know, there's only so much treatment you can give a whale in the wild, because how do you track that whale? Yeah. So if they had found plastic bags, mm -hmm. if, if they had found something obvious, there really is no way to treat without mm -hmm. captivity. So does the bill There is an exemption. That? Yeah, there's completely an exemption for assisting a whale in distress for treatment, for medical assistance, all of yeah. that is covered. Now, Bill C-68, by the way, which is also uh, about capturing in the wild, yeah. it has the same protections and exemptions that if it's a question of an urgent rescue mission, you've got cover, you can do it. Okay, because we're seeing ship strikes and we're yeah. seeing things like, and we're gonna see more ship strikes. Yeah, maybe, so. maybe please God, no. Yeah. Yeah. I'm good with that. Yeah. I'm totally good with that. Yeah, and, and the, the support for this bill, I have to say, to everybody who sent an email or made a phone call, I think what saved us was public pressure because something was, a, something was going sideways and it was going sideways in a way that uh, people who know these things told me, you're going to have to live with it. You have to have to hope you get it passed in the Senate because you can't, we, can't, we can't save this now. We've got amendments we have to pass. And it reversed itself within 24 hours, less than 24 hours. So I went to bed really depressed Monday night, thinking after all this work. And Willie Moore he was so depressed. He said, I can't believe this is happening. We thought we had everything, all our ducks are, up, are lined up. And I'm, I, you know, one of these days, maybe one of my buddies inside the, you know, the Liberal Party will tell me what really happened. All I know is I owe big thank yous to everybody concerned because they they, whatever was in, and by the way, I don't think it was a political problem. It was inside the bureaucracy somewhere. And that's one of the things that as activists, we have a hard time coping with this idea. Within the civil service, 
you can be losing on an issue where the politicians don't even know what's happening. So it takes a kind of a sophistication not to say, well, you're a bad person because your government was about to mess this up. You think, okay, how did this happen? Where was the glitch? And I think the glitch was deeply within one of the government departments, and it took political people to fix the glitch. So full thanks to all my uh, friends across the aisle in government, because they somehow or other, they fixed a big glitch. We nearly lost the bill on Tuesday, April 2nd. And in fact, the bill had a triumphant steam across that particular hurdle. And now we just have to make sure, we're not counting our chickens for they're all hatched, but that means report stage, third rating. And then we may have to pop a few champagne corks. Fantastic. Is it common for a bill to take up? This is, is the most uncommon path of any bill I've ever seen. First of all, it started in the Senate, took three years to get out of the Senate. That's very uncommon. I mean, I kept wondering, what, what is it that Why got... Why was that one senator stalling it? I, I Don Platt, well, there, there was, I still got a complaint into the lobbying commissioner because Marine Land was not registered as a lobbyist, and they were clearly lobbying conservative senators. I haven't gotten a response yet. I filed that, oh, now I'm trying to remember, more than a year and a half ago. So I kept thinking the really perplexing issue here is how does Marineland manage to keep all these conservative senators in captivity? Nice. <laughs> in their own little pool, fighting us like crazy. Very cool. So we have to hope that Bill C-68 gets out of the Senate fast because that's a really good bill for fisheries. By the way, while I'm on the topic of Senate bills, everybody seems to be campaigning for Bill 69, C-69 as if it's a good bill. It's terrible. Which is Bill C-69? It's the C69. Environmental Assessment Act, revisions, the Navajo Waters Act, and the National Energy Board, and it was brought forward as an omnibus bill by Catherine McKenna. And a lot of environmental groups, because the industry is against it, I see on Twitter every day and at Facebook, you know, let, your sen let senators know we have to pass C-69, we have to get it through. It's terrible. It'd be much better to fix it in the Senate. It's such a bad bill. It keeps most of what Stephen Harper did to environmental assessment. On the other hand, okay, C-68- you are actually breaking my heart here. I know. C-68 is good. Okay. C-68 is the Fisheries Act bill. Dominic LeBlanc did a great job. C-69 has three different bills in it. Mark Garneau did a pretty great job on navigable waters. Catherine McKenna gets a big fat F for the environmental assessment piece of legislation she brought forward because it keeps most of what Harper did to our EA law. But it's masquerading as an environmental bill because the oil, the oil sector is saying, stop C69, it's an anti-pipeline bill. It's not. It could just as easily be a pro-pipeline bill. It's just that it's so full of discretion that it's not evidence-based. But it's also designed so that we never get back the environmental assessment criteria that we have had since 1975, which is that any federal project gets reviewed. So we used to have four to 5,000 projects a year reviewed. Harper cut it down to fewer than 100. Catherine McKenna's bill, C-69, will keep it at fewer than 100. And it's, it's a terrible piece of legislation. I've, I've fought, been, I put forward 150 amendments to improve that bill, and it's my hope and prayer that the, the senators, uh, mostly independent senators who have the majority in the Senate, will revive my 150 amendments and pass enough of them that passing C-69 will mean something. And where do you think we are at with what you've called the Trudeau-Morneau pipeline? Uh, it remains, yeah, the Trudeau-Morneau pipeline remains, uh, we've bought the old one. They're bound and determined to get permission to go ahead and build the expansion, even though it makes no sense. Kinder Morgan was trying to get out of it. 
because it doesn't have a market, it doesn't have an economic case. So Kinder Morgan kidnapped their own project last spring with the goal of killing the hostage. They didn't want the ransom money, they just wanted to get out of having to build this white elephant of a pipeline. And to their amazement, I'm sure, they discovered that the government of Canada was prepared to pay any money to be able to claim to Albertans, we got your back, we want this pipeline built. There's no evidence for it. It's, uh, uh, and to spend another 10 to $13 billion, which is Bill Morneau's intention, is outrageous. By the way, another thing that happened this week is we had the report of the Environment Commissioner on the failure of the Liberals to meet climate targets and also on the failure to cancel subsidies to oil and gas. And one of the things that the Environment Commissioner discovered was that Environment Canada refuses to describe spending $4.5 billion on a pipeline as a fossil fuel subsidy. What is it then? How, well, you, how else would you describe I it? I can't begin to imagine, but perhaps you a can Christmas get, present? get Catherine McKenna on your podcast and ask her. The Environment Canada apparently can't find a subsidy to fossil fuels with both hands and a flashlight. And the other thing, of course, is that Finance Canada took away their flashlight. Uh, yeah, so one step forward, two steps back, but for the whales, it's a good week. Excellent. Thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> Thank and you. we're planning to broadcast this on Earth Day, so congratulations. Yes, Earth Day is the day I cease to be a single mother, always on my own, fighting everything by myself. And I get help from a husband who's very committed. His name is John Kidder, and he's an excellent fella. Excellent. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Finn Donnelly is the NDP's deputy critic for Fisheries, Oceans, and Coast Guard. He spent almost 10 years working on a bill to end Canada's role in the global shark finning trade. He's worried the Liberals are trying to torpedo a proposed law, and he needs our help. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, Mark. I'm doing well. That's fantastic. Where, where am I reaching you at? Where, sorry, where am I at? Yeah, where, where am I finding you? Oh, I'm in Coquitlam. Okay. Um, I'm in. Uh, I'm. I'm actually right in my constit office at the moment. Oh, very cool. Uh, so, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Very busy, but uh, I'm doing well. So, I really wanted to catch up with you on basically what is going on with your shark finning bill. Where has? Yeah. What's happening with that? Yeah, that sounds good. I'm uh, ready to give you an update. Do you want me to? Do you want to do pre-interview? Is that uh, what you're thinking, or I'm good with you just diving in, if that's okay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, where are we at with? So, let's catch up. What's happening with the shark finning bill? I gather that you were upset with liberal delays, but what's the scoop on these liberal delays? Right. We so when I uh, spoke in the, what's called the first hour of debate, uh, the uh, the parliamentary secretary uh, Sean Casey responded when he spoke uh, and said, you know, that they were fully that the Liberal government was fully in support of uh, you know what uh, the intent of the bill was, which was to ban the importation of shark fins to Canada and the exporting of uh, shark fins out of Canada. Uh, however, they were. Uh, he started talking about the possibility of amendments, 
And the concern about amending it, uh, the bill or the legislation at this stage, and remember, this is a, a Senate-sponsored bill, is and it's already been through uh, the Senate. It's had uh, a couple of years of uh, discussion and uh, committee meetings. Uh, witnesses have been called. Um, it's 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 been a couple of years that the government, if they had concerns, could have in, already in, introduced or spoken about their concerns or their amendments uh, earlier. So what, unfortunately, given that we are, uh, you know, a couple of months away from the House rising, is we're up against the clock. So in order to get this legislation through, we it needs to. Uh, go to the last hour of debate, which is coming up next week. Um, and then if it is, uh, if there's enough support, it would then be moved to committee to the Fisheries and Ocean Standing Committee. It would need to go through uh, committee hearings and get through the committee process, come back to the House for a third reading, get a first hour uh, for, of uh third reading, wait 10 days before it can go to the last hour, final hour, um, and move forward for third, third and final reading vote. That whole process could normally take a couple of months. So we don't have a couple of months at this point. We would need to uh, you know, move it very quickly through committee. We'd need to see if we could even trade up, um, which is uh, possible, uh, to to move it as quickly as we can through the process to get it through what I just described. So that that is, uh, you know, uh, ambitious, and it will take uh, a while. It'll also take the stars being aligned so that we can move the legislation through and move it up and trade with, with uh, other legislation that's um, willing to say, yeah, sure, go ahead. Uh, you can go ahead of ours. And uh, that hopefully, uh, and we can't start that until we, you know, it's been all through the, the committee. Do so you have, what we've, yeah. I was going to say, do you have a sense of why these amendments are coming up? Like, is there, is this an intent to kill the bill? Well, that's a good question. And that's, and I was going to say, since uh, the, um, you know, the first hour of debate and subsequently, and since um, Mr. Casey's comments, um, there was uh, a news article. I was uh, interviewed in iPolitics and, um, and I, I know that the response, uh, the, the government is concerned about uh, the concerns that I've raised, which is a good thing. So, um, since then, we've had, I've been hearing back uh, that there's a number of uh, Liberal members of Parliament willing to support the, the legislation, which is a really good sign. So uh, obviously, at this point, we need enough members. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I've heard, uh, and this is, again, all informally, and so you never know until it's official and formal, but uh, informally, uh, my understanding is the the ministers uh, responsible, which is uh, fisheries and uh, to some extent environment, um, are you know that I'm hearing positive responses uh, to this legislation. So that that is very helpful. 
if if they I mean, you know, the government could could move this legislation tomorrow if it chose. Uh, but, you know, given that it's uh, it's a Senate sponsored private members bill and uh, it's going to run its course, then the the other option is to is to work with what's being presented in the House. And that's that's, you know, uh, at this point, we're hearing positive indications. So hopefully they are not going to introduce those amendments. We won't know until it gets to the standing committee because that is where they could introduce those amendments. Um, so a, a very similar track and focus, if we look at a similar piece of legislation that has run a, 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 actually a very similar course is S203, Wales in Captivity. So that, that bill, which is also a Senate-sponsored bill, which was started by Senator Willie Moore uh, four years ago, um, and then picked up by Senator Murray Sinclair, uh, that went through a, a very similar process that I just described. It went through the Fisheries and Ocean Standing Committee, and it was there were several amendments attached to it, uh, both uh, conservative and uh, liberal amendments. And what I had been arguing with that bill, 203, was if you amend this, even one amendment, even amend the title, it then needs to go back to the Senate for the Senate to sign off and agree. And then then it has to come back to the lower house. That essentially would kill the bill. So luckily at the 11th hour and the last committee meeting of uh, the Fisheries and Ocean Standing Committee for S203, uh, the Liberal members agreed to withdraw their amendments and vote against the Conservative amendments. So in other words, there were no amendments to that, that bill. So S203, which is being sponsored by uh, MP Elizabeth May, um, has been uh, moving ahead. Now, it was scheduled to be now going to third reading at the end of May. However, luckily, she has been able to trade up and move, move to May 10th. So that is uh, going to be very, very close, you know, for it to, to get through because you just don't know what could happen. You know, there's uh, all sorts of things that could happen in the House that could, um, you know, prevent the legislation from being discussed or voted on, uh, whatever. We just had, for instance, um, a, you know, a 31-hour filibuster uh, by the official opposition, and that affected it, it affected my bill, S-238, um, and it, it affects everything else in the House. So you just never know when something may happen in the House that is going to affect the order of uh, how legislation is, is being discussed. So, you know, as much as you can plan and think, it, you know, it should be able to get through in time, you just never know. You can't predict uh, everything that's going to happen. But um, for S203, it's it's looking more positive now that we're we're looking at uh, third reading at uh, May 10th. And uh, then you know again, if it gets a, a majority of a majority vote, then it uh, has to wait at least 10 legislative or sitting days 
before it can come back for third reading, third and final reading. So that um, that's looking promising. Um, and so with the shark fin bill, that S S two thirty eight, that's slightly behind um, S two o three in terms of the process. So it's uh, it's running up uh, against that June twenty uh, first deadline, and uh, you know we can't we can't leave it uh, any. There isn't a lot of room for error. It has to move through quickly. So I'm hoping uh, when we return to the house next week that uh, we can get uh, you know agreement to uh, get a voice vote which means that would actually if if there was a voice vote on may 1st um, that would allow it to speed up even uh, faster it wouldn't need to go to a recorded vote the following week in other words you'd save a week of time if it goes on a voice vote then it could go to the committee uh, as as soon as possible. Now, then the chair, once the clerk has sent the official registration that the you know S two thirty eight has has been officially approved um, at, through that stage of of the process, then the then it goes to the clerk uh, and the clerk notifies the chair of the fisheries committee and the fisheries committee has to then put it on on the agenda. And remember, the the committee already has a full agenda, so now it has to make room for S two thirty eight deliberations. So my hope is that you know that it it goes on that voice vote, uh, that it moves to fisheries committee, that the chair is willing to put it put on uh, a couple of uh, committee hearings, maybe to hear witnesses, uh, and you know for one meeting and a, a second meeting to review the legislation line by line and uh, and then uh, you know take a position and vote on it and then get it back to the house for third reading so again that's that's my hope we have seven legislative weeks left so not a lot of time and anything can happen and certainly as you get closer to you know the the house rising uh, around this time we start to call this silly season and especially in the year of an election when things can go sideways pretty fast uh, depending on what the government's mood is or what the official opposition is trying to do or others so you know things are are very unpredictable around around this time um, and the, you know especially given what you've seen in the past uh, couple of months in in the house of commons uh, I ended up interviewing Elizabeth May about a week ago, talking about the Free Willy Bill. And honestly, until I saw your iPolitics piece, I had assumed that if one bill went, they both went, because they're they're covering sort of similar territory. So I was really excited and thought, oh wow, these are both moving forward. And then read the story in iPolitics, hearing that your that yours has been installed. Yeah, it's uh, it, it is alarming, um, and as I say, uh, we're hearing uh, positive uh, notes from the government, uh, positive uh, indications that uh, they may not uh, be putting these amendments forward. Uh, now, uh, you know, you never want to take anything for granted, so I want to encourage your listeners if if they they care about shark finning. 
are in you know around the world. Uh, this is an important piece of legislation. It would set a precedent. Um, Canada could take a lead role, um, you know, against the uh, brutal practice of shark finning by supporting S-238 and encouraging all uh, government members and, you know, all MPs to support this legislation. So I would encourage your listeners to uh, write to their MP, to email, phone him or her, let, let them know the importance of supporting S-238 and moving this along. So, you know, that's, that's where we're at right now. It's a, a very critical time uh, that we encourage the government not to make amendments to, you know, this, and remember, this has been thoroughly studied. This bill has had witnesses. It's been studied. Um, it's for me, I've been working on it for eight years since I first introduced, uh, you know, private members legislation on this. And I'm very happy with this proposed legislation. So, you know, I think this is um, uh, what Senator McDonald has put proposed and what the, the committee has reviewed the Senate committee, the Fisheries and Oceans uh, Senate committee um, is an excellent piece of legislation. Uh, you know, it's always when you're proposing things, you know, can it be improved? You know, uh, sure. You know, there's always little tiny things that you, you could improve. And, and that's, you know, fair enough. However, at this stage, if you were, if the question is, you want to get something on the books and get it uh, in place before, you know, the, the House rises and Parliament dissolves? Or do you want to get this bill perfect? I think what I would recommend, given that I think this bill is very, very good, this proposed legislation is very strong, it would be precedented, precedent setting around the world, um, Canada could take a lead role, is let's approve this legislation if there's any issues or, or concerns, then we can improve on it later. You know, as, as uh, we do with all legislation and, and laws that uh, get implemented, they get improved on over time. They run into tests and issues and, uh, and unforeseen circumstances and, and we address it. Let's not, you know, wait for perfection uh, in order to, to get something that we've been waiting for uh, for, you know, certainly for me, 10 years. And I know scientists around the world have been ringing the alarm bells about, uh, you know, top predators like sharks uh, disappearing from our oceans um, for for years. So this, this is our opportunity. This is a chance to uh, send a message that you, that the government cares about sharks. They care about um, our healthy oceans. They care about uh, making sure that we have a, a, a functioning ecosystem, marine ecosystem for future generations, and this is something that we we could do. If Canada does this, it would it could influence the United States. If we had Canada and the United States, uh, you know, sending a strong message of banning the importation of shark fins and and, uh, and not exporting shark fins, that could send a message to the EU. If you had Canada, U.S., the EU, then, you know, you're sending a very strong message to Asian countries that, you know, we are not willing to uh, put up with or, or purchase uh, products that aren't sustainably managed. And 
there is, to my knowledge, um, no sustainable shark fishery of shark fins uh, that I know of. There are sustainable shark fisheries. We have one in Canada, a uh, dogfish fishery, and it is, you know, it is, uh, it takes into account many, many issues that would keep it on the criteria of, of a sustainable fishery. We know that shark fins are coming mostly from unsustainable fisheries. Most of the time, very often organized crime involved. It's a horrific practice. It's, it's not a sustainable fishery when you are just taking the shark, catching the shark, cutting the fin off and kicking the shark back to, to sea. That is not, and if you talk to any fisherman or in, in any fishery, they feel it's a wasteful practice and it is not one that they would want to support. So it's time for Canada to do the right thing. The time is now we have uh, only, uh, you know, a, a few short days uh, to really get this uh, legislation through uh, before the House rises uh, in June. Wow. I was going to ask, uh, is there any sort of boilerplate letter that you've prepared? Is there any information on your, your website, anything that I can share with people to make sure they get active on this? Yes. Great question. There is, uh, you could go to findonley.ca, go to my website. Um, you can go to my Facebook page. Um, you, you'll get information through those, uh, both, both the website and the Facebook page, but you could also um, go to Oceana. Uh, Oceana's uh, got a website. They've got a petition. In fact, uh, they did a petition with change.org that, that has over a quarter million signatures. Uh, now that's, that's beyond Canada. It's, uh, it's uh, got many people signing it from around the world, but that's how many people are paying attention and want to see this S-238 go through. So wow. over a quarter million people have already, you know, put their name to the petition to say, you know, they support S-238. They want to see the government of Canada do the right thing and approve this legislation, implement it, get it in. Uh, before you know the house rises and and we end this this parliament so that's you know people can definitely go to my website go to oceana's website go to the the humane society uh their uh of canada their website um, there's lots of information uh there's a number of organizations uh you know uh, brian and sandy stewart have been doing incredible work uh you know, before their son Rob Stewart died and since they have been doing incredible work raising the issue around the world. They want to see uh, the government of Canada adopt this legislation. They're strong supporters. They work closely with Senator Mike McDonald on this on this proposed legislation. Uh, so there's there's many, many areas that uh, your listeners can get information, get educated about it find out about, you know, uh, what the issues are and how they can lend their voice and their support to this bill. But the, the main thing is to let their, their MP know that they want them to support S-238. So a quick email, a phone call, um, uh, like I said, go to, go to my website. You, you can get to, 
you know, a, a letter that you can send in uh, to your local MP and let him or her know just how important this is. I've got so many other things that I'd love to talk to you about, but I really want to keep the focus on this for today so that people go out and write their emails and make their phone calls and send their letters. So thank you so much for this. <laughs> Absolutely, Mark. I, I appreciate you, uh, you know, spending some time on this. Uh, it's, you know, often people say, well, what, you know, th th this is a shark. That's, you know, what's that got to do with things? And, you know, our oceans are incredibly important. Canada is an ocean nation. You know, we are, we are bounded by three oceans and we, you know, we, the oceans play a, a pivotal role in regulating the planet and the climate. And they provide us with uh, a, a bounty of resources and, and just their ecosystem alone in and of itself uh, within a marine ecosystem is amazing. So with, with all of those uh, benefits, and the, the positive contribution that oceans play to Canada, we need to, I believe, we need to steward our oceans in a productive, positive, sustainable, healthy manner so that we, th those of us uh, that have enjoyed the benefits of, of a healthy ocean can pass on uh, a healthy stewarded ocean into the future. And our scientists are ringing the alarm bells on specific aspects of what's in, in our oceans and what's not in our oceans. We are losing top predators at an alarming rate. We have a changing climate. The ocean is acidifying. We have uh, plastics in the ocean. We have pollution in our oceans. So we, we have some serious changes that we need to make in terms of how we are stewarding. And Canada has a role to play in how we are stewarding our oceans and can be a world leader. You know, the Liberal government has, has said that they want uh, to protect our oceans. They, they are uh, behind the, the international commitment to protect 20% of our oceans by 2020, um, and 10% uh, uh, we've, we've already achieved. So we need to move in that direction of, of positive stewardship, of protection, of uh, changing our practices and, and improving our practices, uh, sustainable fisheries. One of the things we can do is to support uh, a healthy oceans is to ban the importation of shark fins to Canada. We know that almost all shark fins come from an unsustainable practice of, of shark finning. We know that that's driving sharks into extinction. We scientists have been telling us the numbers are there, that it's astounding that we are, uh, some, some estimates are over a hundred million sharks a year are being slaughtered uh, for, for their fins. A hundred million of these animals that play a, a critical role in maintaining the balance and that the health of our, of our ocean ecosystem. We're losing these, these uh, creatures at that alarming speed and that rate. That is not sustainable. We have to stop that. We have to turn that around. And we can do that. We know now. We, we know through um, the science, good science, uh, good information, um, that 
the estimates are alarming that we we what we need is political will what we need is to be dedicated and say you know we are going to make a difference on this one issue and then you know continue to work on on uh, all some of the other really difficult issues like changing our fishing practices improving uh, fishing not just in Canada but around the world Canada is actually leading the way in many of our fisheries we we have uh, very sustainable fishing uh, practices in in some fisheries we're doing excellent we can be proud and and uh, share around the world our practices in other areas we need to improve just like other fisheries around the world and certainly an area of concern is in the high seas in the international uh, area of uh, where there is uh, very little known about the the wide open ocean um, very little enforcement um, and and uh, all sorts of uh, uh, unsustainable fishing practices are happening in in the, the high seas or outside of countries' economic zones. So we we can change. We can become a world leader, but we need to uh, adopt positive, uh, healthy legislation that indicates that we're willing to take a strong stand. And this is and supporting S two thirty eight is is one of those ways that you can do that. Um, you can as a country you can show and demonstrate that you're willing to move towards uh, healthy leg- adopting healthy legislation that will get us uh, towards a healthy ocean. So, Perfect. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thank, thank you, Mark. And there's, there's been many others as well. I mean, I mentioned a number of organizations, a number of groups, uh, but there are so many people across the country, individuals who have spoken out to me. I know um, back in uh, 2015, I believe there was a poll done where 80 one percent of Canadians said they support uh, a national ban. So there's a, a lot of support across the country uh, for this kind of legislation. And uh, I've certainly heard from uh, the young generations, younger people, they get it. They know that you show them a photo or, or video footage of, of shark finning and they're horrified that, that we actually do this. And so, you know, people, uh, they know what what's right and what's wrong. And and they know that what they do and what they don't want to support. So what we need is the government to stand up and say, right, it's time. We need to, uh, we need to change. And and I have to say, you know, uh, uh, the parliamentary secretary uh, for fisheries and oceans, Canadian Coast Guard, John Casey, did say that they, uh, that the Liberal government does uh, support in principle this. But what we need is more than principle. Uh, supporting it in principle, we need to support it in actually. We need them to adopt this legislation to show through the adoption of this legislation before the House rises that uh, that they're willing to do that by supporting this legislation. As I said, I'm hearing hints that that's uh, an indication that that is, um, you know, possible. So, you know, we need the public and all those folks that that are concerned about the health of our oceans whether it's you know whales or sharks or top predator others, we need anyone that and everyone that is concerned about that legislation uh, about maintaining a healthy ocean to contact your legislator, your MP, and let him or her know right now today uh, that they need to support S two thirty eight. And if if people if enough people did that, we we will um, I think send a strong message to. To the legislators to to make 
that decision to support the bill. It's what happened in S203, and I think we can get the same support for, and if that's the case, we can get the same support from uh, members of parliament uh, for S238. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks, Mark. Take Take care. care. Bye. The Southern Resident Orcas mostly live in the Sailor Sea, except when they don't. We were lucky enough to reach Josh McKinnis just after a close encounter with Elpod in Monterey Bay, California. Hello, how's it going? Good, how are you doing, man? Dandy. So where are you right now? I am in Monterey Bay, California. Fantastic. And can you talk about who's with you right now in Monterey Bay, California? We're talking, Uh, you know, whales. Oh, man. Okay, so we had uh, the Southern Residents. We had Elpod, um, which was really exciting. Uh, We had them on March 31st. And then uh, yesterday we had um, a group of transients. uh, We we call them the Grey Killers. They're um, led by a female named Emma. And it's... uh, we call them OCT30s, and um, their other name is um, – actually, they also go by CA140s, and then the Canadian government has labeled them as U105s. Wow. Can, yeah. can you start off by talking about how rare it is for Alpod Shop? I mean, I think it's pretty cool that you went from Victoria to California, and the whales followed you. <laughs> I wouldn't say followed, but i got to admit it was something super rare. Um I was in um, San Francisco. I was just doing a presentation on our research, uh, doing transient work with um, the American Cetacean Society, San Francisco. And um, they, I was kind of explaining the different types of killer whale to the audience. And my first thing I said was, I doubt you'll see residents down this far. It's quite rare. And then literally two days later, I saw an Hellpod in the bay and I I was just blown away. It was a, it was a bit of a shocker. I was it was just something I was not expecting. Can you talk about why they'd be down there? I I read that they weren't that they haven't been spotted that far south since 2011. Yeah, that's right. So 2011. So I mean, they haven't been spotted. So that's what's interesting. Um, you know, the Monterey Bay, it, you know, is a deep canyon system. It's very pelagic in an ecosystem way, but. There's also, you know, a lot of offshore waters that, you know, we're just because we haven't seen the southern residents down here since 2011 doesn't mean they haven't been down here. But that why they might be down here could be that they're looking for um, winter Chinook or outer, outer coast Chinook offshore. Um, and also the fact that a lot of research that's been done on the southern residents, they've looked at um, salmon coming off the Columbia River, which is just um, near Oregon and Washington, just at the border there. And that that salmon population or Chinook salmon population there is very important to them. So they could be following Chinook in the wintertime as they come back out to sea or or uh, along the outer coast. So I gather the new uh, the newest addition to the Southern Residence was there. Did you spot him? Yes, I did. He was looking good. Um, L one twenty four was with. Um, uh, L1, L77 actually, and looked very healthy. It was kind of exciting. Um, once we found out it was Elpod, like where, when I saw the saddle patches, we were first on scene. We actually found them um, at Carmel Bay. And my team at Marine Life Studies, we kind of just were 
looking through the binoculars, and, and as they got closer to us, I looked at the saddle patches and I recognized L72. So my first thing on my mind was we got to find L124. I, I really wanted to see the new the new calf and see how it was doing, and um, it was looking strong. It was keeping up with its mother side by side and with the other group, and literally traveling at 11 knots. So they were booking it north, and the calf had no problem keeping up with with the group at all. That's fantastic to hear. Now, can you talk about what you do, like what your research is? Because we really just dived in because I couldn't resist. Just the idea that you're in California and you came across Alpuck because you've had a heck of a year. So can you talk about your research and, and what you do? Yeah, so right now I'm kind of working on a project um, to study the, um, the transient killer whales in Monterey Bay. I Even along the coast, um, I'm about to start up a PhD I'm hoping I'm applying uh, to get in right now with a, this project actually with what I'm doing it's been a project that's been in the works for about five years so I joined marine life studies in 2015 um, about actually 2014 and then I started working with them in 2015 as their research coordinator so I would take care of all their data help publish papers help build identification catalogs and in you know to about about five years ago, I had a few, I had so I had an interest in studying a group of transients um, that are a bit of a subpopulation within uh, the community of West Coast transients, which are from Southeast Alaska to Southern California. These these are called the Outer Coast transients. Now, the Outer Coast transients are really interesting compared to say the typical transients you see off off Vancouver Island. They seem to have a bit a bit more of a pelagic distribution where they spend a lot of time off the continental shelf. They um, specialize in hunting large cetaceans like gray whales, um, especially in Monterey Bay. It's their main prey uh, is gray whale calves. And it, they have a seasonal distribution, but really nothing else is known about their distribution outside of Monterey Bay. So that's where um, where my interest in food web ecology um, comes in with fatty acids and uh, stable isotopes, and I'm hoping to try to understand a little bit about what they're eating and where they're going outside the the, the spring gray whale hunt. Very cool. Can you talk about how orcas hunt gray whales? Because they are, you know, they're they're a lot bigger. So what do they do? What's the technique? Yeah, that that is so cool. Um, the gray whales, I mean, it's the ultimate prey to to really forage for. I mean, we see them hunt harbor seals. You know, it's it's a little different. But gray whale calves, so as the gray whale calves make their way north from Mexico um, along the Pacific coast, they usually hug the shoreline. And as they come across Monterey Bay, there's this deep canyon system, like the Monterey Bay Submarine Canyon, which is basically the most prominent bathymetric um, feature of the entire bay. And when they come across that canyon, the transients start to actually look for them they'll like we saw a group of we saw the emma's group the other day or the, the gray killers and they have a certain way of hunting gray or looking for grays like when they're looking for them where it differs from transients of the pacific northwest they often will be split up in about three groups and they constantly they don't fit they fan out but then they also they spend the time looking along the canyon edge just on the continental shelf so when a gray whale calf is actually sighted, um, they will then try to separate a mum from their calf. So often the group will um, try to keep pace with the mum and calf and try to tire out the calf. 
And some of these hunts can last up to about six hours, um, even longer. And once the calf is separated from the mother, um, they'll often try to either ram it, jump on top of it to try to drown it, bite its flukes or pectoral fins. It can be quite a quite an interesting sight, and also it can be also devastating, especially if you're trying to you know you're rooting for the killer whales, but you're also rooting for the gray whale calf that the the mom had been nursing for quite some time. And once that's you know, finished, if the, the gray whale calf uh, is killed, um, they often will feed on the submerged carcass for an extended period of time. And they often will take the lower jaw, the tongue, um, and it depends on the region. And in Alaska and another area, it's similar to Monterey Bay with their killer whales, uh, especially this area called False Pass or off Unimac Island. The transients, the water there is very shallow. So instead of just eating the lower tongue and jaw, Often the killer whales there will eat, will feast on the carcass for for an extended amount of time. Where in Monterey Bay, they often just get the under jaw, the jaw and tongue, and then the gray whale carcass um, will kind of drift into the canyon or uh, sink below reach, and and that's kind of how uh, a gray whale hunt kind of goes. Seeing a hunt like that, for so many people that I've talked to over the years, their entire vision of orca is is now built around the southern residents and the idea that all orcas or killer whales are really cute and cuddly and lovable and why do we call them killer whales anyway and then you talk about watching the trans the transients do their thing with gray whales and you go yeah that'd be kind of where you got the name (laughs) yeah i mean um you know killer whales i think you know even when they're eating just fish like salmon it's it's still hunting something it's still you know an upper level they're still upper level trophic predators now transients are just a more dramatic form of that and um you know i think that the reason why we see these different kinds of foraging with transients residents is because to support a large population uh of top predators you need to have sort of some sort of resource partitioning where they split up kind of prey resources so that kind of probably shaped their evolution but with transients, yeah, they definitely have that killer mentality. Um, you know, the kills are more dramatic. They're hunting, a, you know, seals and and dolphins that are in whales that are more intelligent, say, than a salmon would be. And that does take a lot of coordination and, you know, skill. So, yeah, I can see where you're coming from with the whole killer whale and orca um, lingo that you hear in the media. And killer whales definitely do hunt. But the thing is they kill in order to survive. And that's kind of part of nature. Now, can you talk about seeing the Type Ds? Because that's kind of astonishing. Weren't you just up north in Alaska? What were you seeing up there? So I wasn't in Alaska. I was in Antarctica, actually. Antarctica, Uh, okay. Yeah, so I was down in the southern hemisphere. I actually was with um, the Type B1s and B2s. Okay. And... um, the B1s were really neat. They're they're similar. The B1s and B2s are similar to transients, actually. They um, the B1s are a mammal hunting form that um, specializes in wave washing seals off ice flows, and they're very large. And they often specialize in targeting Weddell seals. Uh, the B2s are a smaller form of killer whale, that, like similar to the type Bs, but they specialize in hunting penguins. And we got to actually see a dramatic hunt of uh, which is which we have online on um on the trends and killer whale research project you can actually see the the footage but um of a group of type b2s herding a gen 2 penguin towards our vessel and they played with it for over an hour it was pretty wild that's crazy 
I've always wanted to wonder what it would be like to see them hunt on an ice floe. Can you describe that? Can you describe that behavior? Yeah, so when it comes to pack ice hunting, it's probably one of the most complex forms of foraging um, known in killer whale uh, culture. And it's it's so different from anything else you see. I mean, for one, you have to look for a specific prey type. I mean, you've got a few different species of pinniped that live in the pack ice in Antarctica. You have Weddell seals, you have crab eater, and you have leopard seals. And it's almost like the Goldilocks story where one is just too dangerous the other one is a little bit too dangerous and then there's one that's just right and the leopard seal is a little too dangerous the crab eater seal is pretty feisty but then you get the weddell seal that's uh that's just a mild meek animal that doesn't put up much of a fight so when type b ones or the pack ice killer whales are looking for their prey they often will spy hop around ice flows and when they're doing this they're looking for that seal and it has been shown that they'll actually continually to do that they'll see a leopard seal they'll kind of move around and leave that area because well even though they could eat a leopard seal or a crab eater seal the energy expended to try to kill one would or the risk of being bitten by one would outweigh the benefit of actually taking one so they they once they find a weddell seal though the group will then coordinate by uh moving around the ice flow. If the ice flow is too big, depending on the size of it, they'll try to break the ice flow with a coordinated move into smaller bits um, until that seal is in a, a particular size. And once that size of ice flow is reached, they'll then create a wave to try to wash the seal off. Now, as that happens, one killer whale will often go into the other side of the ice flow to try to grab the seal that's coming off the other side. If that doesn't work and the seal finds its way and hides uh, between a little bit of ice, they'll even coordinate by trying to blow bubbles through from their blowhole to actually create like a smoke screen. And that then enables them to try to grab onto the seal without being bitten because the seal can't really see where, where, where they are. So it's such a complex form of foraging and it is such a neat behavior. And I think it's probably the most complex of anywhere else in killer whales that I've seen or most people probably. Is that the coolest thing you've ever seen them do? Uh, I think, yeah, I'd say yes. Um, I think I, you know, it's, it's quite dramatic. It's so rare too. I, um, I mean the penguin thing was just out of this world. I mean, it was so rare to actually watch, um, you know, a type B2 or the way they call the Gerlach killer whales, um, actually herd penguins and how they were training the young to hunt penguins because, you know, so far penguins seem to be the only thing on the menu that I've seen or read about. And, um, penguins don't f have a lot of meat. Like, I mean, the, especially the Gentoo penguins are not very big. So if to feed a family and some of these were up to 25 strong to feed a family, you'd have to eat quite a few of penguins. So it was interesting to see how this one mother was training the young, how to, how to chase a penguin and how to herd it. And, you know, it, that was just, it was pretty spectacular. Wow. Um, uh, so are you, you're based at UVic or you're based in Monterey? I live in Victoria. Um, and I just finished off my university, uh, job there. I finished off in the fisheries ecology lab and I actually started working for Lindblad National Geographic to do some special marine mammal guiding in Antarctica and some else elsewhere. So now I'm focusing purely on research. Um, I'm now with this whole get, uh, hopefully getting into the PhD aspect of my academia. I'm hoping to be working with Dalhousie University, which is 
something we're talking about. I won't go too much into that until I know a little bit more, depending on how this season goes. Uh, we have a lot riding on this season in, in Monterey. So with Monterey, um, it was kind of just a perfect spot. Um, we're, our research is a nonprofit, and we're lucky to have a NOAA permit to do our, to do our research. Um, a lot of the studies that we're going to be doing in Monterey are really looking at um, the culture and foraging and diet of you know, a killer whale that a killer whale that hasn't been really studied. I mean, we don't know the West Coast transients in Monterey, and if you know, there's been even speculation if they belong to that population. Um, especially when recovery plans were were drafted in 2007 by, by or by killer whale experts in Vancouver, there was a lot of wondering how the real California community fit into the whole scheme of transients in the Pacific Northwest. So this, I'm hoping hoping kind of you know we'll look at how these pelagic types of killer whale utilize you know the entire coast and how they fit in with the communities can you just talk about how different these different types of killer whales orcas look just to give a sense that these really are quite unique so when it when it comes to the um like if you most people look at residents transients and offshores um the residents have often, you know, open saddle patches. They're smaller in size than the transients, um, rounded dorsal fins. But then you get, in transients having pointed dorsal fins, they still have the black and white color, that monochromatic color. But the, in, if you go down to Antarctica, you get a whole different, or the southern hemisphere, you get a whole different slew of killer whale um, morphology or phenotypes. You get yellow coloration that is caused by diatoms on the skin but then you also have a weird gray and white color instead of a black and white um often also you have a large dorsal cape which is where the saddle patch will extend all the way almost to the rostrum in this long linear line um you have a massive uh, postocular eye patches so the large eye patch is a lot bigger in type b's even the type c's have wispy eye patches and then the type c's um, are also the smallest form of killer whale are on average around 20 feet in length, which is a lot smaller than the 25 to 30 feet that's present in some of the other forms. So you really have a high diversity. And um, I think even in the transients up here, I mean, we're finding too that in Monterey, I've looked at some of the killer whales and we're using drones now in Monterey to try to do some measurements on them, that the transients are quite a bit bigger than you know, even transients up north. Um, so this is something that's kind of made us a little bit more curious to understand really what's causing some of these differences. How did you get involved? How did you fall for whales? I fell for whales when I was um, about the age of 12. I grew up in a place called Port McNeil, British Columbia. So that's in the north end of Vancouver Island. And killer whales were kind of iconic along the coast. I mean, when, where I went to high school and elementary school had orca paintings on the wall the whale watching was a major um, part of tourism uh, there was totem poles and, in alert bay and along the along the north island that showed killer whales and one day i was fishing on a, a pier in port hardy actually it's about 30 kilometers north of port mcneil and we witnessed a group of transients actually heard a small um pod of Pacific white-sided dolphins into the harbor, and, and they killed one. I didn't know who the transients are that were at that time, but a few years later, after I got to know a 
of different individuals, I recognize them as the T-18s. And, and right away after I saw that, um, standing in the dock when I was fishing there, watching that happen, I decided to kill a whale. So I actually got into whale watching first when I was about 13. I joined a whale watching company. And then from then I went into whale watching and then got into university and dedicated, I guess now it's probably been about 17 years uh, to observing killer whales and marine mammals in the wild. Fantastic. Thank you so much for this. Yeah, of course. Thanks, All right. Mark. And uh, I'll be zapping you soon about photos too. So awesome. Very cool. All right. Congratulations. And thanks. Thank you, Mark. Night. Bye. Thanks for checking out Scanna, produced by Audio Avenger Rain Venu, with technical assistance from the astonishing Art Messenger. If you like the show, please, please, please spread the word. Subscribe to our newsletter and our media magazine. Visit our YouTube channel for cool bonus material. And if you're on iTunes, please click that subscribe button so we can get more sponsors and you don't miss upcoming episodes with guests like Peter Voliban, author of The Inner Life of Animals. And if you'd like to help us make more podcasts more often, please join our pod at patreon.com. Join now and you can get a special signed edition of my latest book, Orcas Everywhere, in stores everywhere in September. If this show didn't work for you, this is Daily Breath, and I'm Deepak Chopra. Namaste, eh?